Hello and welcome to the Upland Lives podcast. My name is Mike Rain, author of Nature of Snowdonia. Uh, this podcast is free to air, ad-free and music-free. You can find out more about me and my workshops and e-learning modules at mikerain.co.uk. My um, guest today is John Cousins, uh, a long-time friend of mine and colleague. Uh, he's the Chief Executive of Mountain Training UK and Ireland. John is an experienced instructor himself, although you might often see him as an administrator. He's extremely active. He's a qualified mountain guide, mountaineering instructor. Been on many climbing expeditions, done some particularly interesting, challenging family expeditions across the Canadian wilderness in a canoe-based style. Um, and he's still very active. He's a, he's a very fit uh, gentleman and he's running around the hills for fun on his days off and his time off. So uh, he, he certainly is one of us in terms of activity. So John, how? let's start at the beginning because uh, it's a long story and it's quite complicated for people, um, the world of mountain leader training. How did you get into the outdoors? How did you become a, a walker, climber, mountaineer? Enough to be a guide, goodness sake. Uh, yeah, I was just thinking about this earlier, Mike. And I, I, I think my introduction, apart from adventurous canal path walking with my dad, was, um, was to go to an outdoor education centre. I went to Aberglaslin Hall. Mm. Uh, I was a Leicester boy and uh, had what undoubtedly was a really really significant life-changing experience by by doing that and of course right now we're looking at the decline in in those sort of opportunities so uh, i'm very grateful for that that beginning um it 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 struck a chord with me i didn't think i liked sport um but i liked adventure activities because they were sort of unregulated um joined the local climbing club went to the middle of leicester on a wednesday night to to convince people that I was old enough to be in a pub to find out where we were going to go on a Saturday. <laughs> used to have brilliant Saturday mornings. We'd go to the Peak District with this group of guys. Fantastic morning climbing in Stony or somewhere like that. And then, honestly, a terrifying afternoon because in the middle of the day, we would go to the Moon Pub. Mm-hmm. And I was a 15-year-old boy, and I watched these men consume, for all I knew, gallons of beer. I, I had a little lemonade in the corner. They probably had half a pint, I don't yeah. know, but it just felt like they were getting hammered at lunchtime and then I found the afternoons terrifying <laughs> on the grid somewhere so that that was my kind of early days and then in truth at, at school at A level I wasn't working hard enough wasn't applying myself very well and I think the good thing that I did was realise that it was better to get out than sort of persevere I think and so in the back of the climbing magazines there used to be an advert always for Waswater Hotel and Cobden's Hotel so Lake District and Snowdonia mm-hmm. I wrote to both, asked for a job, got one at Cobden's, took my last exam one morning, bought a motorbike in the afternoon, mm. wobbled my way from Leicester to Kapelkirig, and uh, never looked back. Gosh, uh, that is remarkable. Yeah, I'd forgotten we had that similar beginning. Aberclasin Hall is really sadly a bit mothballed at the moment, isn't it? It was Bewley Park in the Dales for me. Mm. I wonder how many young people now are coming through that route. It's a, it's a, it's a great... Well, I mean, they, they, they reckon that the heads of outdoor education centres talk about two million kids deprived of uh, a residential experience through, through the COVID sort of lockdowns. Uh, but but the positive news is here in Wales the the centres are currently it seems you know getting to the point where they're agreeing that all young people should have a residential experience so um, hopefully that COVID 
lack of uh, extracurricular activity has made people realise the, the value of it. So we'll see. Yeah, it's funny. I was talking to John Harold of the Snowdonia Society. And here in Wales, there's quite a lot of optimism. And that's a, a lovely story that the Welsh government are considering the mm. residentials for all children in Wales. So, yeah. uh, so there is optimism. And there's optimism in mountain training as well, John. But you've been here a long time, haven't you? How did you start off in mountain training? I hesitate to say how's it changed since you started, because I know it's changed out of all recognition. But what was it like that first day when you walked into the office? It's it's in the eighties, I believe. Um, I guess it was about nineteen ninety, and I haven't I haven't worked for mountain training sort of continuously. Mm. I've come and gone. Um, and, and it was preceded um, with you, of course, uh, working at Plaza Brennan and doing a large volume of particularly mountain leader mm. scheme delivery. So, you know, we got, we got a few years, you and I and others, of, of kind of, I think I did six, I remember doing one period of six weeks of consecutive <laughs> <Yes>. ML <laughs> trainings or assessments. So, you know, we were steeped in the subject. Yeah. And then, I don't know, I think I was doing a whole range of things like rope access and a bit of filming and this and that. And there's, mm. there's some kind of opportunity came up to do a little bit of work for the BMC in its old office in Manchester. And, um, you know, it turns out that thinking about it, not just doing it, can, can be sort of compelling and, and interesting. So that, that, I guess, is where it began. How's it evolved? Um, uh, well, in some ways, not too much in that, you know, our, our original product, the Mountain Leader Qualification, is probably not that dissimilar to the one that was created in 1964. The delivery model that we use, the, 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 somebody in 1963 must have got an envelope out and written, how about we make them register, then, then send them on a training course for a few days, then leave them to practice it, and then we'll assess them. That was the model. And um, five years ago, I guess now, we asked Bangor University to, to research whether or not that was an effective model. And their conclusion was it was, and, and I'll, I'll sort of qualify that, but it, but it was. So in some ways, what we do now is what we did then. The qualification from Bangor was there are many people that could do with more support on that journey from beginning to end, but not everybody. So the model is fine, but there is more that we could do with people along the way. How it's evolved, though, more widely um, is that we offer a great many more qualifications. We have, as it were, come down the mountains. So we have a, a lowland leader uh, qualification. We have a climate wall instructor on Saturday at our next uh, regular kind of council meeting. We will be considering whether we should be scoping out a bouldering, indoor bouldering qualification because bouldering walls are growing at, at a pace. Mm -hmm. And you know, so, so we don't change very quickly, but we do evolve. Um, we are not a governing body, we are an awarding organisation. Mm -hmm and people want our qualifications to be reliable. So they shouldn't change too quickly, but, but we have evolved in that way. And, and I guess in the other way is that we have, I would say in my time, we have evolved quite a lot in terms of uh, recognizing the sort of roundedness of people. That, that it isn't just, you know, we would be accused, you and I would have been accused 30 years ago of only assessing people on their skill of taking a bearing and tying knots. That wasn't what I believe I was doing, and I'm sure you weren't either. But people would portray us mm. as having a very sort of major technical bias. Yeah. And I think that's evolved greatly. Lots of thought has gone into decision-making and leadership of, of late, teaching and learning, 
and of supporting people through their, we hope, long careers, be they volunteers or, mm. or paid. Yeah, there's, there's a lot in there, John. Let's just, um, let's just rewind a bit. When you joined in 1990, was it the Mountain Leader Training Board? Uh, honestly, you know as well as I do, the, the, the sort of variations on this, it might have been the Mountain Leadership Training Board, but, uh, <laughs> but I'll tell you what it was. It was classic. In a way, here's a big, big piece of evolution. It was classic. I'm, I'm English by birth. Mm-hmm. I have lived more of my life in Wales than, than in England. Mm-hmm. I would love to spend more time than I already do in Scotland, mm-hmm. and I have a fantastic time whenever I go to Ireland. So mm-hmm. I, I am, a, you know, I, I am a UK and Ireland person. Mm-hmm. Mountain Leadership Training Board didn't even bother using the word English on the start of it because you know English people just assume they're everything, don't they? So so that that organisation was the English one. There was a Scottish one, a Welsh one, etc. And what's evolved really well is the sort of federal structure of of mountain training, so that now we are. We are uh, to the outside world called mountain training. Yeah. Very simple. Yeah. But that doesn't exist other than a kind of brand. Yeah. Un- underneath the bonnet, there are five organisations, which is an improvement because there were six a little while ago. <laughs> and those are mountain training, and we'll do them in, in, in yep. alphabetical order Mountain Training Board of Ireland, which is all Ireland, Mountain Training Cymru, Wales, Mountain Training England, Mountain Training Scotland, and then the coordinating body is the one I work for, UK and Ireland. So, so those individual boards are not that relevant to the individual mountain leader or no. mountaineering instructor. To, to them, no. it's really just mountain training is all they need to know. Yeah. Do, do they still have to register for different boards? Does that cause a confusion when they're doing just the winter ML, for example? No, I don't believe so. I think that you're right. That the, the, if you like, the governance of it all, people don't need to worry about, but there's, there's plenty of people putting thought and time mm-hmm. into that. The products are what people are interested in and accessing those products. And if it's a winter mountain leader, no, that's sort of, you know, well, well explained. People can register straightforwardly. They're not having to, you know, pledge their heart to a particular nation or anything like, like that. So that's all pretty straightforward, I would hope and believe. I think so. Well, I mean, it's, it's always difficult, isn't it? Because we kind of know it, but yeah. uh, do, do, people do get confused from time to time. So yes. just thinking about mountain training is good. Yeah. There's also the Mountain Training Association, isn't there? Yeah. Some people sort of confuse that with the boards as yeah. well. So yeah. where did that come from? And a lot of people listening will be members of the MTA, so they don't, they want, to, um, uh, don't want to speak down to them. But just, just tell us how it started and what its central thrust is. Well, again, if we're doing history... Uh, when you and I were were working at Plaza Brennan as assessors for the mountain leader scheme, the one shot people had at learning anything was on that course. Mm. After that, they were either operating alone or within whatever it was the institution that they were in, and there was no way to interact with mountain training. Mm-hmm. Um, in other sports, uh, canoeing being our probably nearest neighbour, there was a kind of tie-up between qualification and membership of a mountain council, and, and your qualification was invalidated. We didn't like that model. We, we liked the idea that we qualify people and that's that. We didn't see enough evidence to say that we should be questioning people after a year or five years or whatever. But it was obvious that we needed to support people beyond qualification. So the Mountain Training Association was born as a, an option for people and it has been a slow burning building thing. And right now we are clocking our way through the 14 Himalayan mountains. So <laughs> we are heading towards Everest. We are 8,400 members right now. That's so excellent. We passed Choyo and we're sort of working our way up there. So it's, it's growing all the time. 
I think that the whole business of membership is something that is sort of uh, becoming better and better recognised, whether that's Mountain Training Association, Mountaineering Instructors, British Mountain Guides, the British Association of International Mountain Leaders. Those four associations all have a lot in common and a lot to do to help people sustain their, as I say, volunteer or professional careers. Mm. We, we know how long it takes on average for somebody to qualify for, let's say, the Mountain Leader Scheme, and it's about five years. Mm. That's a long that journey. A long it's a long journey for people to go through. And, and we, of course, therefore, don't want to lose those people. So we want to hold on to them for years and even decades afterwards. So the Mountain Training Association is there to create a wonderful community of people that can work together, can do lots of excellent regional work. You know, part of our thought at the moment is about how to help people practice where they are, that they don't need to burn, burn fuel to come to the lakes and only the highlands. Um, you know, they, they can do it in Suffolk. Mm. Um, so there's lots of great initiatives going on within really the Mountain Training Association. And, and I would say that, you know, more and more now, we are heading towards the point where there are opportunities for us to promote our people, and we won't be promoting our candidates as much as we'll be promoting our members. Because we, because we know about them, they are mm. known to us. People who qualify may have qualified 40 years ago or five years ago. We know less about them. We qualified them, and we're, we're happy that we did that. Mm. But we're more interested in the people who are qualified to do the job now. And that means that um, uh, another project at the moment is to try and replicate what canoeing have done. They've created a website called Go Paddling, that is designed for the public as opposed to designed for an in-crowd. Mm. And it's been incredibly successful. They've nearly tripled their membership within British Canoeing wow. by speaking to the public. So the most popular question there is, what's the difference between a canoe and a kayak? Yeah. And they answer that question. So they know what the public yeah. is asking. Yeah. But as they answer those questions, they talk about the benefits of membership of British Canoeing. Mm. We want a similar kind of project, certainly for hiking. We're going to call it Go Hiking, perhaps. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And we want to be able to speak to that very wide public. Mm -hmm. But in there, you can see that there will be an opportunity to talk about how to get led hiking. Mm -hmm. And if we do that, the, the plug-in will be all of those members that we're talking about. Mm -hmm. Not the qualification holders, but all of the members that we can sort of speak about and know about and rely upon and challenge if, if there, are, there are issues. So membership is a stronger and stronger part of what we're sort of doing. John, that sounds fantastic. That's music to a lot of people's ears because we have, we do spend a lot of time talking to ourselves and we all know what the four organisations are and we all know what the different MTs are. So that public-facing thing, that that's really good, good to hear that. Yeah. There's one other group that uh, does confuse people. So it's voluntary to be a member of... MTA or AMI or BAMEL or yeah. BMG. Yeah. Sorry about all the initials, folks. I'm hoping the listeners can keep up. Um, there's also the BMC, isn't there? The yes. British Mountaineering Council or yeah. Mountaineering Ireland yeah. or Mountaineering Scotland. What, what's that relationship? Why do people have to join those organisations to, to start the qualification route? Okay, so in, in another sport, Mountain training would be the coaching department. It would be within the, within that, that organisation. But it's been, I would say, a, there's a long history of new things coming along within mountaineering and then being palmed away. So there are a great many organisations within the broad sport of mountaineering 
that could have been embraced and instead slightly were sort of pushed pushed away a little bit and indoor climbing, ABC, the Olympics, all these things. There's mm-hmm. a lot of there's a lot of component parts that are separate entities. So in another world, we would be the training department. We get along really well with the BMC in Mountain Scotland and Mountain Ireland, but, but we are, for the very foreseeable future, in, independent. Having said all that, I can see, and truthfully right now, never better, what the BMC does as opposed to what it, what it doesn't. And I've been really enjoying attending uh, a, a series of evening sessions called the Access Network, which are with Access volunteers from across England and Wales. And these sessions are 20 minutes of two people who are total experts, so like somebody that's had a 30-year in, 30-year career in rights of way, mm-hmm. talking for 10 minutes to explain what rights of way are in England and Wales. Wow. And the other one will talk, will be a, was a consultant to the government when Crow was written. So they will do 20 minutes of talking mm. and then volunteers from the Cheviots to the Lizard will then ask questions of those people that make you realise how much work is going on across England and Wales all the time to ensure that we can walk and climb where we want to go. And it's really impressive. And I, mm. we're talking with the BMC a lot at the moment about how to kind of help other people have a window into, that, into those sessions mm. because it is so impressive how much work goes on there. And, and so often, very very kind of invisible work. So, you know, Ian Peters down in Cornwall will suddenly realise that there's a farmer going a bit rogue and he will just gently sort of turn him back again, mm-hmm. you know, in a subtle way that you never get to know about. It just means that you continue to have access to the lizard or wherever else it might be. Yeah. Um, so those kind of pieces of work are often unseen, but, yeah. but they're really impressive. So for us, it's a, it's a very long-standing requirement that where appropriate, People should be a council member. Mm. It isn't for all of our schemes, but, but for quite a few of them. But, but again, I would hope that your listeners can sort of get under the bonnet of the BMC or Magic Scotland, Magic Island, and better understand it and understand all the things that go on on, on their behalf. So it's a very, you know, they're our nearest, well, they're, they're part of our organisation structure. We'll, we'll come to front of house in a minute, but we should just mention, it just occurred to me that... You, there are also people like the Ramblers, yeah. um, DV Scouting, and they're involved with the boards, aren't they, in general? Yeah, very much so. Yeah, so we get really, we've got really good relations with the Ramblers at the moment. We work with them quite regularly. You were talking about speaking to the outside world. We've just done a really good piece of research about who's participating in our activities. And mm-hmm. for the first time ever, we didn't just ask ourselves. We could, it's called Your Movement Matters. It's, it's really good. It's on our website. It shows lots of information about who's participating for the first time. And Ramblers were a monk camping and caravanning club were amongst those that helped us speak to a wider audience. And why Mountain Training wants to know that in particular is we don't we don't believe we can necessarily reflect uh, the demographics of the UK in terms of the of our breakdown of people who are our leaders. Mm. But we should at least be able to match or, or work towards matching participation. So if in indoor climbing it's 50-50 men and women that go climbing, yep. for example, that's what we should be sort of working towards with our climbing qualifications. Yep. And we get close, truthfully, there. If, if it's winter climbing and we learn that, that the 20% of women are winter climbers, then, then we should be working towards our winter mountaineering and climbing instructor be matching that number. So it's been a really valuable piece of work to sort of un- understand that a little bit, a little bit better. Yeah, so, okay, let's confront the house. We talked about 
you mentioned lowland leader, hill and woodland leader, mountain leader. Yeah. They're not necessarily progression, are they? They're leadership qualifications in different environments. But there's a nice group of qualifications there, isn't yeah, there? Yeah, I mean, I mean um, it is. It's, it's, they're, they're very clear. I absolutely agree. A lowland leader is an expert. Mm. And, and the truth is that their, their skills in, in navigating that terrain very high, you know. We all know how hard it is to sort of get through fields and yeah. rights of you know paths and so on. So lowland leader, it isn't a progression necessarily. It's interesting to me that uh, I see a lot of people these days who are registering for uh, further sort of qualifications mm. who've come on journeys that wouldn't be the journey that you and I have been on, Mike. You know, mm. so they they are lowland leaders who become hill and moorland leaders who become mm. mountain leaders. So for some people. It is a progression that they, that they clearly find use, useful to yeah. them. But no, for, for not for one moment do we believe that a lowland leader is, is a lesser being. Mm. Not at all. It's, it's really about sort of terrain mm. and, and the skills needed for that terrain. Yeah, I think that's important, isn't it? It's about the environment. It's a progression in the environment, if you like. But then on top of that, there's the international mountain leader, isn't there? Yeah. That's like the... Is that the pinnacle of walking or is that the same again? That's the same standard, but just in different places. Yeah, I mean, it's a good question. Winter mountain leader, uh, you know, is, is the sweet for UK and Ireland, if you like. Our approach to the international mountain leader is just like it says. It is about being an international mountain leader. It's interesting that some other countries treat it as their professional qualification mm. for walking leaders. And, and that creates some challenge for us in our dialogue within the International Mountain Leader Associations because we know what we're trying to achieve and it's not, it's not always identical to what other countries are trying to achieve there or the way they're going about it. Um, but those people are very rounded. And, and you know, yeah. uh, I think the, 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 the thing to understand or the thing that we've come to understand better and better is that qualification is... Terrific. It's a great way to demonstrate competence. It's a great way to, to learn. Um, but the more we've thought about this, when we're thinking about advising others on who they should employ or deploy or hire, or whatever term you want to use, then the qualification is part of the story, but so is some kind of person specification. Because for every one of us, it's about our skills, our knowledge, our attitudes, the training that we've been on, and our experience, and, and so we're emphasising that on there's a web page called Qualification Matrix that we're very pleased with, we're very proud of. We've done it in collaboration with British Canoeing, British Cycling, and British Caving. So we have essentially mirrored pages between all four of us that explain our approach to competence. Um, that don't say that we're monopolistic. We are perfectly content with the idea that people can demonstrate their competence in other ways. But a straightforward way to do it is with one of our qualifications. And then we also go on to talk about who we might consider to be the experts who could advise a club or a facility or a wall or, or whatever else. So that, that's a really big piece of work that we've done lately. Yeah, first of all, I've learned that qualification matrix. So that was a really good idea. So it's great that it's happened here because it's probably a bit more complicated over here, isn't it? Because um, there's more people involved. Well, the, the fact that, the, honestly, the fascinating thing is that talking to people like the regulators, like the Adventure Activity Licensing Authority, mm. they're, they're, I've been really petty in it. <laughs> so, so what I've done is I've written a series of points about competence. Mm. And then at the bottom of that series of points, there are some tables, except for they've collapsed. So you can't see them. So what people want 
I think, is yeah. to go and find a grid, run their finger along the fifth line down to the third way across, find a qualification, go, there we are, that's all yeah. they need. Yeah. And that's all they're looking for. Yeah. And that is a mistake. And so it's really great to hear from the regulators that they love the fact that we've written words mm. about it and that we've very, not quite hidden, but collapsed those, those matrices so that you have to work to find the grid. Because that tells you something. But truthfully, what, they, what, what the regulators like yeah. is the words that precede it. And this has always been a dilemma for us, hasn't it? Because we have always known that, let's just take the mountain leader qualification, it's the assessment plus the logbook, it's plus the sum of your experience. Yeah. And that's the same across all the mountain training qualifications, isn't yeah, it? Yeah. And there will be people beyond the mountain training qualifications who have similar qualifications and similar experience. Is that the case? Yeah, so we've, we, again, in this, in, this, uh, in this page, we've talked about, uh, in fact, it's not a, a methodology that HSC, Health and Safety Executive, talk about now, but we like it, and that is that there are four ways to competence. Yeah. And we're, we're very happy to, this, and same with the other sports, we're happy to acknowledge that those four ways are qualification of ours, that's mm-hmm. fine, that's clear. There might be something equivalent. So like you say, you could, that could be a military thing, it could be from another country, mm-hmm. so there could be something that is equivalent. Mm-hmm. Thirdly, uh, and very appropriate in many situations, will be an in-house solution. Mm-hmm. So uh, an amazing uh, fact I learned recently was, was the workforce shortages of late have meant that PGL have reduced the number of participant climbing days from 5,000 to 2,000 per day. Wow. So, so they, are, they are enabling 5,000 kids to climb in a single day. They were wow. before workforce shortages. <laughs> and, and it's very obvious that in a model like they've got, an in-house solution to training people at the start of the season just to do the job that they need them to do there is a very effective yeah. solution. So you can see that that in-house solution that the Scout Association and others use is valid. And then, and then the fourth solution is just to say, I am vastly experienced. Mm-hmm. It's the hardest thing to evidence, but, but we don't, don't disagree that some people could, could say that. So yeah. that's a good model for us. Does that link into the apprenticeships? Have you had any work, done any work with that? Well, we work, we work with um, um, IOL, regularly to talk about those kind of things the problem the problem the problem i have is you're right mike that mountain training is all that people need to know about but the reality is that governments more than ever now are devolved and therefore funding and support for things like apprenticeships are very much uh, you know driven from england mm-hmm. or from wales or from scotland or from mm-hmm. Northern Ireland, etc so so therefore to us we have to sort of as it were, I don't know about rise above it, but mm. be over that and not get sort of swept away by something that works in one country yeah. and yet won't work in another country. So we, we talk regularly to IOL about apprenticeships mm-hmm. and, and what they're doing there, but, but we, we're not necessarily specifically engaged with it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's an interesting, interesting area, that. Um, because IOL are into pulling organisations together at the moment, aren't they? Is that something you're involved with? Or again, are you just sort of... Well, well, we, advisory as it were. Yeah, I think so. I think that, that you know what 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 is great is that um, as I say, canoeing, cycling, caving, and ourselves have mm. have become um, uh, good collaborators, and, and it would be great if we could sort of if that could be all adventure activities. Yeah. But those was those four get along very well, have a lot in common, have a lot of things that we can do together, yeah. Yeah. and therefore we sort of one of us, as it were, from that group will interact with a specific thing that's going on within IOL or any of those other bodies. So, so of course, we want to help them with understanding you know, our standards and so on, but we're not 
we're not sort of bound to that. And is that, is that, do you see that as part of a journey? Is that a, a single voice for, for pattern sports, mountaineering, and, and what were the other ones? Caving. Caving. Uh, would that be a single voice for those activities that could talk to government, or, or, or would that be too, too fanciful? No, no, no. I mean, I mean today, Mike, is a, a, a lovely morning for me in that I've, I've been to um, the chief wizard of DMM, the, the climbing manufacturer's birthday party that, uh, before I met you, and when and when we're finished talking, I'm going to have lunch with the chief, sorry, the chairman of Sport England, Chris Boardman, uh, because he's coming to Plaza Brennan. And and what we've been doing a lot of lately is talking to Sport England and the other uh, national sports councils about helping them to understand this wonderful thing called adventure sport, mm. adventure activities, and and. It feels like a battle to get them to want to understand it when their own data is telling them that, that our stuff is loved, traditional sport is declining. People, people are very happy to watch it but participate in a different story. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we need help. We believe we need help with hill walking in particular, with the kind of volumes of people that are coming along. So we, yeah. want, we want their help with that. But part of it is espousing the, the values of adventure sport and where we've got close friends, they come in really useful. So the tragedy uh, just almost exactly a year ago was a stand-up paddleboarding tragedy at Haverford West. That is going to become public soon, the report on that, and, and it will criticise government agencies for not taking a greater uh, responsibility for safety. Mm -hmm. So we want to be with our friends, our, our fellow adventure sports, talking to government to help government understand mm -hmm our sector, which is of course very different to what they're familiar with, which is, you know, a, a rugby ground and a stadium and rules and, and, and we need them to understand how much we can influence people and, and how little or not we can govern people. It does seem an uh, alien world sometimes, doesn't it? Yeah. Uh, from the sort of mainstream stream pastimes. And, and ours is a complicated world and it seems to get even more complicated you mentioned this morning about a potential new qualification for, for bouldering and bouldering walls are pretty much in every urban centre now aren't they? they've been mm. a real growth area so it makes perfect sense but does it make it more complicated for people that there are indoor qualifications for rock climbing outdoor qualifications for rock climbing the walking qualifications are separate and you have to do a mix and match of those to become a mountaineering instructor because you've got to do it everything to be a mountaineering instructor. And then when you're a mountaineering instructor, you're, you're this expert who can do everything. How do people see the way through that, John? It's, it's well, very complex. Uh, yeah, you're right. We, we, we offer more products than we ever have. But um, we also believe that that means that more people and different people can, can access them. Um, you know, so we talk, I talked earlier about... Uh, numbers with regard to men and women, well, that's the, mo the, the easiest sort of part of harder-to-reach groups to tackle. Mm. But we want to tackle them all. We, you know, you, the, for me, personally, I, I, I live above Flamberis. I look at the Snowden path from, from my, <laughs> my window. And, and I, I live in the community of Flamberis. And I very much enjoy, as I said somebody earlier, I very much enjoy being a volunteer taking... Year three of the Flamborough Primary School to Lion Rock rock climbing, and year Brilliant. four at and I don't go on the lake with the kids on year five, and then we climb Snowden as year six, and it's a wonderful thing to introduce all of those people yeah. um, 
to, to those activities. Sorry, what were we just saying? Well, it's just how do people see the way through all that minefield oh, qualifications yeah. to become a mountaineering instructor? Yeah, Divert, sorry, go back to COVID, that's what I was talking about. COVID, what I kept thinking about was the single mum in, in a high-rise in Birmingham yeah. that was trapped in, you know, trapped. Yeah. Yeah. And, and therefore, all, and all the health issues that sort of came through COVID and, and therefore how much the nation deserves to, to enjoy, if they wish, our activities and have access to them. Mm. And, and therefore, you feel like you need people from those communities yeah. uh, leading rather than simply participating. So, so our drive now is, is to ensure that we are, um, have a much more diverse offer that is more accessible. Um, so I don't think we sort of apologise, if you like, for a, a wider range of, of products because we think we could probably access more people and enable more activity yeah, yeah. through all of that. Our job is clearly to explain that yeah. as well as we can. It is. And it's a real challenge, isn't it, reaching those other groups. As there was a Women in Mountain Training Conference recently. It looked amazingly successful. Brilliant, brilliant. It was, it, the, 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 the bit, from my point of view, the bit that was fun was... Uh, myself and Guy Jarvis sat on, on the podium on the Sunday morning and our staff were all looking at us grinning and they were going, what, what are you all laughing at? And they were going, you two look so uncomfortable. <laughs> and, and I didn't feel uncomfortable, I really enjoyed it. Yeah, it was amazing. Yeah. There were, yeah. It was a fantastic kind of weekend and we've got plans to do more that will be conferences for other harder to reach groups. So um, really thrilled with all of that. But changing the demographics of our of our kind of uh, workforce mm. are a very slow thing to achieve. It, it takes people, you know, if, if the mountaineering and climbing instructor is sort of the central uh, component of our scheme, has been, it takes a very long time. I don't even know how long, but five years per component for the four bits that they've got to get. Wow. So arguably 20 years. Yeah. That means inevitably it, it defaults to being a, a lot of white yeah. older men. And that's not a good solution. Yeah. So we are therefore changing the threshold of who can be approved yeah. to deliver our courses so that more and different people can, can do that. We have been referred to as elitist, mm. but we're only elitist in that you have to be actually competent at what you're doing to lead other people. So it sounds to me as a, as a go hiking an avenue that will show people what we do and how they can get to be leaders or instructors. Well, well. I, think it, I think truthfully in the first place, it, it's to enable people to go for a walk. Yeah. I think it, 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 you know, the mountain training spin-off of that will be probably years down the line. In the first place, mm -hmm. our interest mm -hmm. is in ensuring that people who are coming to do these activities can sustain it, that, they, they, you know, that it is, is something they enjoy, that they don't get their fingers burnt in any way. We really, really love the massive range of new and emerging groups of people participating, the, the likes of Blackville's Hike and Muslim Hikers and mm. Boots and Beards. Mm. But again, we're worried that, that for some of those groups, they, 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 well, they've, they've adopted a really different model for their clubs, as it were. Mm. You know, elitist, absolutely. I'm in the Climbers Club and the Climbers Club, I mean, look at it, you, you, you can only join if you know three or four other people in that club. You can only join if you've got a list of clients that somebody else will approve of. Mm. It, it's got a certain approach to it. The, the kind of new and emerging groups are the opposite. They're saying we have a, a particular theme, a particular interest, whether that's faith or whatever else. We'd love you all to come and join us. Mm. That's wonderful. 
But clearly, if you're going to do that, you need some competent people in there because you're going to have all comers turning up. And so we want to help those groups mature. Mm. So there's a, the, the, there is ultimately, I suppose, a benefit for mountain training yeah. uh, in, in yeah. it all. Yeah. Yeah. But I think in the first place, we just want to, you know, we, we believe in these activities and we want everyone that's finding these activities to sustain them and, and to do that in a way that doesn't cripple the rescue services, to do that in such a way that doesn't, you think about, I think about my back door is Snowden. Snowden has these thumping great uh, marker posts all over it telling you where to go. I don't want mountains, all of our mountains degraded because the people coming on them can't cope on their own. So we need to help them manage for themselves so that they can go into wild places and, and, and cope with all of that. So, so that's the ultimate aim, I suppose. You do offer the hill skills and mountain skills yep. qualifications as well, which yep. are accessible for people. I'm just thinking that there might be people listening who, who want to contribute more to mountain training's work. Are the opportunities for volunteers to, to get more involved with mountain training and to influence things as, as they move forward? Yeah, absolutely. So, so I mean, firstly... Um, we don't differentiate between volunteers and professionals mm-hmm. with, within our qualification system. So there, isn't, there is no two-tier to any of this. And um, many of the people that, that work also volunteer and, and, and back and forth. Uh, how can people help in, in lots of different ways? Um, you know, they, they can help within their own communities, but equally they, they can help our organisation. So there, you know, there are opportunities for sort of being involved in the governance of the organisations. Um, but, but right now, part of what we're talking with BMC about is a volunteer strategy. And, and part of that volunteer strategy has to be about competent leadership and how we can make the most of all that leadership to enable more and better activity. So, so that will primarily be, in the first place, through the Mountain Training Association. Mm. So we've got an 8,500 person workforce there, many of whom mm. are willing and able to volunteer to help. And, and, you know, we will tie that up with other organisations like YHA and National Trust and so on. So if you're talking directly to mountain leaders, mountaineer instructors, rock climbing instructors, everybody else today, John, what sort of messages would you like to give them? How would you like them to uh, represent mountain training, you know, the ethos of leadership or um, forget all the MTC, MTE stuff, talk about mountain training? What sort of messages would you like to give to those people? representing mountain training aren't they aren't they they, they are and, and uh, I suppose in the first place what we know is they're great yeah, so they we are. know that all these people are doing a fantastic job um, that, that's the first thing to know mm. uh, and I think it is you know their enthusiasm as much as anything we, we clearly want them to look after the places that they go to yeah. and we want them to inspire the people that they go to with mm. so really that's, that's the message and we've got resources to help them with those things but we want them to be inspiring and we want them to, to look after the places that they go into and, and preferably be very open to the people around them. So not just to the group that they're leading, but also the other people on the hill and be, be yeah, very open, I suppose. CPD is an essential way forward on all these different areas. I think CPD is, is matured. Um, it, it, it's becoming a kind of you know everybody kind of sees the value of it it's not we're not being too prescribed about it there are brilliant opportunities of many different mm. shapes and sizes and it, and it just helps people remain confident mm. that's what we want to do is help people remain confident to do the work that is so wonderful that they do 
So we are coming to the end of our time, John. We just want to uh, dream a little bit about the future now. Where where are we going? What what Mount Tony may have been a bit criticised for just creating new qualifications so you get more income. I can't imagine you're going to invent more new qualifications. So what are you going to do in the future? Where are you going? Where are you going to be in five years' time, ten years' time? What's Mount Training going to look like? I think the biggest thing that we haven't talked about is sustainability. And um, we've, mm. we've begun a piece of work with a big group of folk to, to look at that. In the first bit of that, of course, is about exactly what mountain training purchases and travels and those kind of things. We have control over that. We don't have direct control, but we do have a kind of moral control over our candidates and what we're asking them to do and whether we're asking them to travel the length and breadth of the land. So, you know, again, I mentioned Mountain Training Association developing its thoughts on how to practice locally. Mm. Um, so I think there's a lot that we need to do to think about whether or not the experience requirements that we've always set are still sound and, and bear scrutiny when we're thinking about the environment as, as well as everything else. So that's probably alongside our, our drive for a more diverse workforce. That's probably the other big thing in, in the next few years. That's brilliant, John. I'll be privileged to be involved with that sustainability work on behalf of the Association of Mountaineering Instructors, so I look forward to that. Uh, I'm going to finish there, John. Is there anything else you'd like to say? No, great to chat. John Cousins, thank you very much for your time today.